0: Good
1: afternoon, and welcome to A Public Affair. I'm Sholly Pittman. My guest today is Jennifer Holland. She's an associate professor of United States history at the University of Oklahoma, where she specializes in the history of gender, sexuality, and race in the 1900s. She received her master's degree from Utah State University and her Ph.D. right here from UW-Madison. We're talking today about her book, Tiny U, which traces the history of the anti-abortion movement. Dr. Holland and I spoke in late July, about a month after the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in their Dobbs decision. Because this show is pre-recorded, we're not able to take your calls live on the air, but you can still leave us a message by calling the station at 608-256-2001 and pressing extension 9, or by reaching out to A Public Affair on Twitter and Facebook. So, here's that conversation with Professor Jennifer Holland. We started off talking about the title of the book itself, Tiny You. So I thought we might start with the title of the book, Tiny You. That phrase makes its appearance in a section detailing how children were recruited and used in the pro-life movement. Tell us where you discovered that phrase.
2: Yeah, it was um, it was in that pamphlet In in it was made a pamphlet made for young children. It was one of many pieces of sort of political ephemera that the movement was really gearing towards children, especially in the 80s, 90s and on. And it was so arresting to me, that pamphlet, because on, at the beginning, it seems just like any other kind of discussion of reproduction. You know, they said, how do you get born? How You know, you have an egg and a sperm and they come together. And then the pamphlet went on and said, at that point, everything that was you was already there. And they said, you know, this, this, entity was a tiny you. And they go on to discuss abortion and they say, you know, abortion is parents get scared and and they decide to kill their child in the womb. Very explicit language, right? They move from this like basic discussion of conception to this very I would not say graphic but ex- but pretty straightforward and and politicized notion of abortion. And to me this pamphlet really captured something really essential to the movement, which was this invitation to so many different constituencies of Americans to connect themselves to the fetus, right? To invite young children to think of themselves as a fetus or a former fetus but also this invitation to imagine a genocide happening. And, you know, parents are supposed to use this with very small children. And this was just one of many political tools used to to do exactly that, connect children. and, And they especially asked them to think of them as survivors because they were born, to compel them to represent fetuses, right? To represent them as survivors, to become activists themselves. And anti-abortion activists are remarkably successful at getting young people involved in the movement, partly as a result of this work um, from the 80s onward.
1: I wanted to ask that as the first question, because your book really is a discussion of the rhetorical strategies used in the anti-abortion campaign. Another rhetorical strategy that you talk about is the power of imagery as an anti-abortion rhetorical strategy, um, starting with. The Precious Feet. Tell us about The Precious Feet.
2: Yeah, this was um, a this is a pin um, that becomes the international symbol of the anti-abortion movement. Um, I believe it's chosen in the 70s. But the the pin is made by a small anti-abortion uh, company out of out of a show low Arizona. But and they manufacture all kinds of this ephemera. And it's based on a photo. Um, that had been circulating since the early 70s of, I think a doctor is holding um, the feet of a fetus supposedly aborted at like 10 weeks old. And then this manufacturer created these little pins of the feet and that you're supposed to, she imagined that that people would wear them on their lapels wherever they go as a reminder of their views, but also as an invitation to talk to others. And of course, people do. I mean, the, the tiny feet are you know, put into so many different people's hands. You know, legislators are wearing them you know, as this constant reminder alongside just everyday Americans. And so it's this imagery Um, Which is the movement generates one of so many. But also, and this is central to the book, is that it's not imagery alone, that the, the movement's very purposeful at moving that into the intimate spaces of people's lives. So, a pin, you know, like a person, a committed activist, could wear that everywhere, could invite conversations everywhere, could ask people to think about abortion and abortion politics everywhere. And these are the sort of the key ways I think the movement's successful at, at the imagery, at getting people to sort of imagine fetuses as, as people with bodies, right, like little feet. And also that that could confront Americans at any place in their lives and in really intimate spaces of their lives.
1: Well, I want to pick up on something you just said as imagining fetuses as people, tiny people. Talk more about those rhetorical strategies and the use of language.
2: Yeah, so the anti-abortion movement, the thing it needs to do from the very beginning is to try to show what they believe to be true, which is that fetuses are babies, and they should be, and, and abortion is murder, but they need to get people to see, imagine this kind of equalness, right, between born babies and and sort of unborn fetuses. And and they do say that the only reason people don't take that for granted, that they don't already know that, is because this whole host of like these institutions, like the media and doctors and university professors have been pulling the wool over the eyes of like your everyday American. And one way they do that is by rewriting language, right? One of the activists I interviewed, you know, very explicitly was like Alan Guttmacher, the famous abortion rights activist. He had this nefarious idea, right? And he said, if we just call them fetuses instead of babies, we can murder them, right? They really imagine very explicit behind-the-scenes pulling of the strings by elites. So the thing they try to do from the very beginning, in various ways, is to get people to see into the womb, right, into the body of the woman, while sort of erasing the body at the same time of a pregnant person and just see a fetus and try to get them to then imagine that it is a baby instead of a fetus, according to them. Um, And so this is this central rhetorical strategy, but really importantly, um, I think people forget this because this is a movement of religious people, is that they they do that primarily through imagery, arguments about genocide and civil rights, but also about biology. Like that that sort of looking at the body rather than thinking about the soul is really this essential strategy the movement makes pretty early on. They say we're going to talk about chromosomes and heartbeats and we're going to look at toes and fingers and that this is the core way that we make that argument.
1: Thinking about biology, one of the really interesting parts in the the early history um, of this book. You look at a 1960s, I believe, abortion reform bill in Colorado that was sort of crucial in forming actually Colorado's first right to life movement, uh, which we now have all over. Um, And there was a Catholic doctor who used uh, props that would stay with us for a long time, including, you know, on the very campus of UW-Madison, if you're a student and you walk by, sometimes there are anti-abortion advocates and they have very graphic imagery of a fetus. So tell us about Dr. Stewart and uh, and his preserved fetuses. Yeah,
2: so this was um, Colorado was one of many states that was considering an abortion reform bill. And this, of course, predates Roe versus Wade, it's these moments in state legislatures that are considering opening up more pathways to legal abortion. Before that, it was only if the life of the mother was at stake. And they were considering adding rape, incest, and if the mental health of the woman was at stake. Of course, that was the big one. And so there's a hearing, um, a legislative hearing. And Dr. Stewart is this Catholic doctor. um, And he comes and is trying to talk legislators into not passing this bill. And um, at some point he feels like his his arguments are not making the impact. And so he pulls out of his briefcase, a jar that has a, a preserved um, fetal body in it. And of course, in, in medical contexts, these would have been more common, but they were relatively uncommon just in the general world, right? Not everyone would have access to a preserved fetus. And he thinks that seeing this, he says, let's see what we're doing here. Right. And he pulls this body out and he thinks that this is going to compel these legislators. It doesn't. Um, Colorado passes that bill, much to the chagrin of both Dr. Stewart and also this very early anti-abortion um, activist group in in the state that's forming at that moment. Um, but and, and you'll see fetal bodies recur, like actual bodies. And we don't know whether they're products of abortion or miscarriage. It doesn't doesn't matter, really, to the to the activists anti abortion activists will actually try to hand Bill Clinton a fetal body in the nineties they bring them onto television shows very famously recently activists sort of were digging through some you know they, they got access to fetal bodies from an abortion clinic and were holding them in their homes right to try to use them to compel people to um use them as props basically and their their activities but But these kind of preserved bodies would become more rare because they are harder to get access to. And so the the idea of displaying them would remain so central. But Dr. Stewart had access to bodies that most people didn't. So very quickly, they take up pictures. And and there's these two Catholic activists who would make a very important book called Handbook for Abortion. And they would have some of the most famous images that you would still see on campuses today. Like some of those images from a book in the early 70s are still the ones on billboards on campuses across the country and because this little cheap book you know everyone bought it and then they could just reproduce the images which was a lot easier than getting your hands on you know a fetal body
1: you talk about the power of having something in your pocket as a tool in this in this cause You talk about what social conservatives learned from earlier campaigns, from anti-pornography campaigns and from anti-contraception campaigns. You go into detail over a a poem read at uh, New New Mexico, Arizona University um, that is pretty graphic and sexually graphic. um, But the idea that you could read this poem and have it in your pocket is also something that's really motivating. You can explain this much better than I can. So...
2: Yeah, that's what I think. That's one of my favorite stories because it captures so much of of that movement, the anti-porn movement, but really also the anti-abortion movement. So, it's this poem um, called "Love Lust." It's a very explicit, uh, sort of you know, sexually oriented poem, and it was being taught at a University of New Mexico class in 1969. It's led by a, a English graduate student who's a black man. And he, you know, he had prepared the class for reading this poem, done all that work. But once it's taught, someone in the class distributes the poem in the aftermath. And it becomes a statewide panic about what the University of New Mexico is doing and, and the place of sexuality. And the fact that this was a Black man teaching this sexually explicit poem to a class that included white women was especially... um triggered these, you know, sexual racial panics, right? Um, um, And so but the thing is, is that the poem takes on a life of its own, during the panic, that, um, you know, New Mexico still had obscenity laws. And so there's some people are like, well, actually, the poem violates those. But then all these outraged New Mexicans are demanding access to the poem. And they say it's to see what's going on in the university. But then there's all these, um, you know, sort of legislators and media who are like, do we want to give the poem to the people? Cause we're trying to like, you know, they so they become these gatekeepers about whether people should have access to it. Um, and so then like newspaper rooms start letting people come in to read it, but then of course reporting on it. And they especially report on the women. Who come in to view it because there's this weird undercurrent of pleasure, right? Of watching these white women view this poem. This, and so th- this twin, these twin um, feelings of like outrage and disgust, but this undercurrent of like titillation of this, um, this pull of having it something that's explicit or galvanizing and being able to have it at any, at any point. And one reporter says that it makes love-lust the most read piece of poetry in all of New Mexico's history, which is speaks to something really profound about what these social conservatives are doing, but really the function of this kind of illicit work, right? Um, and the movement, the anti-abortion movement picks up on that, right? I think all of these, like, that having a photo is one thing, but eventually people have, as you say, pins, fetus dolls to carry around that it. It can sort of be this, these pieces of ephemera that, that tell you who you are, motivate outrage, but also can bring that, that sort of outrage, this concern about sexuality into one's everyday life in a way that social conservatives, I think, wouldn't acknowledge, right? That this is this power of having sexuality and outrage together just in your pocket at any given moment.
1: So tell us about more of these early rhetorical strategies used by anti-abortion activists.
2: Yeah, so the movement um, pretty early on, you know, they're sort of working this out in the anti-contraception arguments in the 60s. But by the time you get to legal abortion, early 70s, these white religious people, conservatives, are realizing that they can't quite rail against permissive women anymore and they're really focusing on fetuses, but also that they're really drawing on arguments about biology, as I said, but also making comparisons to the black civil rights movement and saying very explicitly that they are in the inheritor of Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, um, that this is a campaign for civil rights. They're comparing um, Roe versus Wade to Dred Scott, they say that both decisions sort of dehumanized, right, and that um, they they say that the United States is on a slippery slope, right, that towards further dehumanizations and genocides. And so they they draw on civil rights rhetoric and also human rights because they very explicitly connect abortion to the Holocaust. And it's really important the way they use it; these arguments is that they never are just comparing. They also are building hierarchies, that they're not, it's not just akin to these other problems, it is worse than. And they make these arguments in a couple not subtle ways. They say, well, you know, unlike issues of slavery and Jim Crow and the Holocaust, unborn babies in their language are fully innocent, right? That being born, no one can, you know, they think everyone has some kind of personal responsibility, and then thus, is culpable in some way for what happens to them but so you know fetuses are innocent in a way that no one else can but also they enumerate and so this really important for them to say this many abortions are happening therefore black women are worse off now than during slavery because this number of supposedly black children are dying this number of abortions of happening that's worse than 6 million Jews, right? They're, they're very explicitly enumerating to say this is the worst human rights and civil rights catastrophe ever. And so they're very much building these, um, these hierarchies to, they're, they're co-opting this language and also trying to make this the worst. And they never really work on other human rights and civil rights issues. These are not white people who are also working on black rights um, in other forums. They really are are co opting it. They're in an almost all white movement, but very clearly using this language. And they're very clear at certain moments in their own publications about, about why this is. I'm not saying they're not sincere believing it, but they say, at least, you know, I had this one anti abortion newsletter um, that says, you know, if we talk this way, it works to hide. The other people who could potentially claim rights to abortion, right? That if we claim the rights narrative, that it can sort of work against women who are who could claim that abortion's a right. And this is this is incredibly important, I think, especially for why this movement's so successful, because they really grasp a hold, I think, of two of the major historical trends in American politics in the late 20th and 21st century, they capture rights discourse in a certain way for certain white people. So you have young white people who think they are a part of a social justice campaign. They can imagine themselves as paralleling civil rights and now Black Lives Matter, right? You have groups calling themselves abolitionists, very much thinking of themselves as a part of America's progress, progressive history, giving more rights to more people. But at the same time, they also are at the center of the growing power of white religious conservatives in American politics. And they're increasing um, capture of that space and moving their politics more and more into the center that really is at its heart about stabilizing or reverting back to social hierarchies that had been undermined as a part of these various, um, these various movements for, for civil rights, for women's rights, um, for social justice.
1: There's a lot of white saviorism in that concept of saving um, people of color and, and women from themselves. And we'll get into more of that later when we get into later rhetoric um, about abortion counseling. Um, but we were talking about hierarchies. And one thing that you examine quite a lot is the role of religion. You argue that from the outside, only from the outside would you conclude that there is a unified front among religious people in the in the fight against abortion within the movement grappling with progress and the role of women was fractured. And you go into some really detailed history about the changing nature of these religions as they grappled with social issues, but also um, how they really failed to convert even um, people of color who are religious into their movement. For example, the failure of the movement to recruit Mexican Catholics. So tell us why, even within the religious community, there was a real failure to recruit folks of color against abortion.
2: Yeah. Well, and I think on the one hand, it's an incredibly successful religious coalition that is built, right? It's not sort of just immediately formed in 1973. Um, so that is very successful. And in some ways it's successful. It's a largely Catholic movement that by the late 70s has brought in huge numbers of white evangelicals. Evangelicals are not initially a part of the anti-abortion coalition in in, in large numbers. And Mormons too join in smaller numbers, white Mormons. And so this is this incredibly successful religious coalition that has these internal tensions between them because they all think they have a monopoly on religious truth. They None of them give that up, but they come together on this political issue and they build these bridges. In fact, so much so that they sell the idea that religion, that being religious leads you to be against abortion. And that's the sleight of hand, because they know there are plenty of religious people, very vocal ones, who support access to legal abortion. But so it's a really successful religious coalition in that way. But in the other ways, it's really not successful, um, In especially in its recruitment, any the interest they had in recruiting people of color. And really, in the 20th century, they only are half-heartedly interested. They really are interested in using their stories and their history, but not as interested in having them. They need, they need sort of tokens, that's important, but, but they don't do a lot of real serious work. And it's especially interesting with Latino Catholics because these big surveys, national surveys showed that Latino Catholics personally opposed abortion more than white Catholics. And yet the movement remains white very, very white. So why is that? And I think that's because, and you know, you'd have, I'd have activists sort of be like, yeah, I don't know why they don't, not only do they not join the movement, they don't, they didn't see them voting on this issue, right? They might feel opposed to abortion, but they weren't, it was not compelling them to vote exclusively for anti-abortion candidates. And I think that the answer really lies in that they're not doing a lot of real organizational work in communities of color. And they're so superficially using rhetorics around race, um, and then not really engaging any of the other issues that people of color are asking for, even conservative ones within religious institutions. This is a moment in time when Latino Catholics are demanding that the Catholic Church reckon with this deep racism, especially in the American West, right? Segregated parishes, you know, along a whole host of other deep, um, deep, deep issues. And, and you have Latino Catholics asking the church to be on the side of their justice issue, participate in um, in sort of workers rights issues, you know, and the church refuses and refuses and refuses. And they have this deep antagonistic relationship for a long time at the moment where the church is jumping in enthusiastically into anti-abortion politics, saying that they are speaking on issues of justice and often using racial justice, but really denying Latino Catholics for a long time, the ability to reshape their own congregations. And I think that That's really the tension at the heart of this. That white Catholics are just, they just don't really understand why, especially Mexican, ethnic Mexican Catholics don't join. They don't understand the differing needs they have, both in terms of politics, but also in terms of the everyday rhythms of their faith. And so they never make very good use of what could have been for them a a possible ally, but they just don't do it. And I think that their very superficial use of racial justice rhetorics is one of the reasons that they you know they don't they don't really care about race and i think that's relatively clear relatively quickly
1: so you do write a lot about religion and the transforming nature of the church. And you write about in all of these private spaces, social conservatives sought to insert fetal politics into places like the church, into your your very personal, intimate relationships, and to continue forcing the issue in those places. And, and, and this issue had staying power. Unlike a lot of other social issues that you might have a commentary on if you you know are a member of these communities, but it was this constant, constant pressure. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, sometimes you'd have people do surveys of religious people and they would say those who are going to church are more likely to oppose abortion. They took that as evidence of it just being more familiar with theologies of your institution, would make you, you know, more likely to oppose abortion. But I think that that what they ignored was how much certain churches had become activist spaces in the 70s onward. Right? These weren't just like becoming familiar with your own theology. This was really, these are spaces that had been transformed over, you know, a, a decade or more um, into activists had infused anti-abortion politics into spaces that that really weren't even Catholic churches. They they opposed abortion, but. Catholics would not have been reminded in a really regular way before the late '60s of the church's anti-abortion stand, and that that changes enormously in the '70s onward. Uh, that it really becomes a part of the rhythm of the faith. Now, Catholics, at least they had that they the 19th and 20th centuries, the church was relatively consistent about what abortion was to them and birth control. Right, opposed birth control and abortion, said so that individuals should not interrupt. God's choice in when when sex led to pregnancy. But what's really interesting are the other denominations, because they don't have that. Um, that the movement in some ways sells them more and more on Catholic beliefs about conception and the soul. And that evangelicals in the late 60s, you have the one famous conference where theologians, intellectuals, Evangelicals—they all get they get together and they're really trying to work through issues of reproduction and sexuality—and they say, "Not clear." They said we interpret the Bible literally, and it's unclear what the Bible says about abortion. That's what they come to in the '60s, and the Southern Baptist Convention reaffirms that in 1974 and 1976 after Roe. That's so foreign to us now, right? That this major evangelical denomination would say the Bible's not clear. And Mormons technically believe that the soul inhabits the body at birth, um, which would suggest that abortion is not murder. And and yet all these people slowly sort of get on board with this movement and really Catholic ideas about about abortion and about life. Um, And I think that is because of not just language used, but the way that these activists bring those arguments and those images and those ephemera into religious spaces. Now, there always were some evangelical anti-abortion activists, and they were crucial for bringing those Catholic tools into evangelical spaces. And they built their own tools, too. Um, And they they bring these um, anti-abortion movies and things to evangelical spaces that are being remade in the 70s. Evangelicals are moving more and more conservative in a whole host of ways. And by the late 70s, this kind of intimate work is like taking root in a way that it just wasn't in the early seventies and mid seventies. And you have even white evangelicals in particular because of this work and the way that it just explodes. I mean, the way that abortion anti-abortion politics becomes essential to be a part of almost every evangelical space in the eighties, nineties, and onward that evangelical writers find in the Bible, they find those explanations that people a decade earlier couldn't find saying that abortion is clearly a crime. And, and then they say, okay, well, we're going to have an evangelical rock concert, one of these many, many kind of evangelical social spaces. Well, you know, in order to perform, you have to be against abortion. And, and, and maybe to show that you have, you know, uh, anti-abortion song. And every evangelical um, book or magazine has to have this, display of commitment, opposing abortion. So it actually becomes central to who white evangelicals think they are. Um, As evangelicals, as Christians, as opposed to secular people, as opposed to American society, it becomes definitional to what it means to them to be who they are and be an evangelical. And that is a product of this movement, that they did this. This was not built in already.
1: So you, you write about the changing nature and the resiliency of crisis pregnancy centers. Um, and crisis pregnancy centers, of course, I think our listeners are familiar with, they outnumber actual abortion providers now. But for decades, they, they were resilient and kind of low-budget affairs. And there are rhetorical strategies here as well in not, let's say, hitting people over the head with the fact that, they aren't going to offer abortion as an alternative and they're not going to help you get an abortion. Tell us about the growth of crisis pregnancy centers and what they were originally set up to do and maybe what they now and the, the struggles they encountered along the way.
2: So the crisis pregnancy centers are in many ways the brainchild of this Canadian woman. Um, and she starts the first one in Toronto, but they quickly take off. The first one's birthright. And and really the model of birthright becomes the model of basically every crisis pregnancy center afterwards, which is sort of using this like vague language. Are you pregnant? Do you need help? And then getting people to call a number usually or come to some kind of center. And that language had been used about in order to have been used by people who were looking for abortion already. Um, and so this used very much that language and and then when they got through there. Once they got people to come to the center, they would give them a free pregnancy test that was off on the hook. We'll give you a test. We'll see what, whether you're pregnant or not. And then they would try to sell them on the idea that abortion was murder. And of course, everyone coming, um, especially in the early years, thought they were coming to an abortion provider or someone who would connect them to an abortion provider. And so deception was built into what these were. Um, from the very beginning. And I talked to activists who started these, you know, in places like Tucson, Arizona, and they said they, you know, they really were drawing on birthright. And they said every single person who called me was looking for an abortion. Like they knew that this was how they were. They were trying to get people who were going to find an abortion and kind of get them to change their minds. That was the whole idea of crisis pregnancy centers. And in many ways it it continued. Uh, What they would do is they would, these were all women's spaces. These were this special place for white women to try to convince these other people who often were poor women, women of color, young women, because these were the people who might not have access to other kinds of healthcare spaces, um, who might need that free pregnancy test. And they'd get them to come in and then try to convince them. And they'd use models. They sort of talk to them about what it meant to be a woman um, and how like acknowledging that a pregnancy was really a baby was like central to what it meant and how they had been like, they knew that. And, and, and this model shows that, and therefore you should reconsider. And early on, they sort of realized, especially because they know who they're talking to, that a little bit of money or or a little bit of financial support is useful. So they have these um, closets that are, you know, full, like that they get religious communities to sort of donate like clothes and, bassinets and things like that. And then if you you say, oh, well, if the person's said I, I can't afford a, a child or another child, you say, well, well, we got this stuff. It'll help you out, you know? So that was the like sort of limits of, and they might help talk to a, a parent um, if they had a young person. Um, but that was the kind of limit of it. And what they realize by, in the 80s is like, they're they're worried that they're not being very successful. That you have, some people catch on, And um, maybe they just know that they can't afford a pregnancy test. And so they come just for the pregnancy test, uh, knowing what the center is about. Other people who are not considering abortion say they are so they can access to the closet. Um, And so there's this real reckoning for the movement, for the crisis pregnancy center activists. They're like, this is all built on deception on their end. And they're so worried that these people, these pregnant people are taking advantage of them. Um, And so the the centers are really remade in in many important ways in the 80s and 90s. And one of them is that they they remake the donations closet. They say, well, you can't just get access to it. You have to earn what they call mommy dollars or something akin to that. And then what you earn it is you take classes with the Crisis Pregnancy Center. And some of it is sort of basic fetal development or prenatal care or whatever. But a lot of it is uh, classes on sort of socially conservative views about life and gender and all sorts of things. And you have to take these classes in order to get your mommy dollars and then you use those in what they now rename the baby boutique. So they're really hoping to like transform people, right? Change their minds about abortion, but also transform their worldviews. Um, and the other really important way the centers change is they become this institutional node for disseminating this these ideas about women being traumatized by abortion. Um, which is like the central argument the movement comes up with in the 80s and and is really useful to them for the next, you know, until now. And they argue that abortion causes a trauma um, that is like PTSD. And you have, you know, anti-abortion psychologists who come up with this idea. And the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association keep saying abortion does not is not a commonly trauma-inducing event. They do study after study and say this, they call, the activists call it post-abortion syndrome. They say post-abortion syndrome doesn't exist, doesn't exist, doesn't exist. We do all these studies, doesn't exist. But the movement doesn't care, right? They continue to sell this and crisis pregnancy centers take up what they call post-abortion therapy or post-abortion education, you know, and this is, these are some of the hardest parts for me to write about because they were so... um, manipulative and also hard because you can imagine that the people seeking this out often would have already had some kind of felt hurt in their lives. So the movement said, you could feel like you're totally fine and still have this kind of post-abortion syndrome. But you imagine people who came to this, some of them might have felt bad about something or other, right? In these crisis pregnancy centers, they would this therapy would really involve sort of talking these people through the experiences of their abortion and and connecting all their current sadness or problems with with their abortion and and really leading them to what the inevitable conclusions are of the therapy and, and then they'd also ask them to sort of reconcile um with the people they hurt, God um eventually maybe their family, but with the fetus themselves. and so you'd have, these activists who are inviting these, these people to say, you know, they say, you know, can you tell God who you killed? Can you talk to Brittany and tell you, tell them why you killed her? And, and this, these people thought was in the name of the, of women's health, their mental health. It would save them from trauma. And I think they sincerely believed it, but they thought that by acknowledging abortion as murder, Um, And sometimes accepting Jesus Christ, right? That was another part, potentially, that that would lead to emotional well-being. They thought that very sincerely. Um, And the end point of this work was supposed to to make activists. They were to get um, these people who had abortions to say that they were also victims, right? Another victim of abortion, and then go talk to the public and talk to legislators, get another if the fetus couldn't do the work, right, of speaking about abortion, you could have others. And, and these women who claim to be what they call post-abortive women um, or the other victims of abortion would be some of the most important people that the movement would cultivate to do that work. And, you know, crisis pregnancy centers were then staffed by a lot of those, those people. They sort of did. They transformed through this kind of political therapy. Um, sometimes temporarily, because they would burn out. But um, some of the people I I interviewed were were people who had come to the movement through that process.
1: You say this was a really hard portion of the book to write. And it was also a hard portion of the book to read. And I think this is leading up into your conclusion is that it is pinning all of your personal issues, your baggage, your negative emotions on that abortion that you had. It is the evil that springs forth all the rest of the problems in your life. And that is a powerful argument to make. Um, and that kind of brings us to the conclusion of your book, where th- there's that on an individual level. Um, but as a society, social conservatives have made abortion the key issue. And by doing so, had it be the root cause of all our other forms of violence and of. Aff- afflictions that we face as a country. Um, Can I read a little bit of your conclusion? Because I thought it was really powerful.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You write, nominating pro-life Supreme Court justices became the political goal that superseded all others and kept Americans from truly addressing the many forms of violence afflicting the nation. If abortion was the origin of gun violence in America, there was no real need for gun reform. If abortion was at the root of racism, there was no real reason to oppose the gutting of civil rights measures. If abortion was the source of women's oppression, then abortion restrictions were the only measures that could help. That really stayed with me. It's quite a conclusion to come to. (laughs) So now we're in a moment that um, generations now have not had to grapple with, right? Access to reproductive rights was a given for my, my mother right? Um, for her life. Um, we're also at a time where the top issue of social conservatives is more or less achieved. There's still more to do, but the, the big the big issue is completed. Um, other issues once settled like contraception and gay marriage could also be on the chopping block. Um, so I wanted to ask you two questions and they're similar. What now for social liberals, for people, you know, in the wake of Dobbs What now for social liberals and what now for social conservatives now that their top issues completed?
2: Yeah, well, for social liberals, I think that they are facing what will be uh, decades of political work that's needed around these issues. That sending this back to the states, as Dobbs does, means that abortion rights will hang, especially in a state like Wisconsin in every election and, and also every time um, you know Congress changes, the presidency changes, these things could lead to either full, more full banning in your own state. And of course it could lead to ending abortion across the country. And so this Dobbs, the decision suggests that what we've had has been so unmanageable, the Roe standard and then the way that Casey adjusted it. That was so unmanageable. But what we're going to see is that the ruling of Dobbs is going to mean that abortion engulfs every election, and that liberals are going to have to be doing that work um, on a local and state level that they've had to not do as much and have to do really grassroots work that they haven't had to do, partly because Roe stood. That they're going to have to go back to the moment of the late 60s and 70s where where people were were having to find, get people, pregnant people to abortion providers, right? Maybe breaking the law to do so. Who stands up to confront the law? Um, And who has the moral authority to do so? And what success does that have? How does that translate into elections? These things have largely not had to be the concern of those committed to reproductive rights because Roe, as eroded as it had become, still stood and it does it does no longer. So this is going to engulf people for a long time. Um uh, for social conservatives, this is a huge victory that, as you say, is not the end, but also it signals a moment where. Conservatives have an incredible amount of state power um, and an institutional power in the Supreme Court. And that opens up so many options that, you know, I live in the state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma has banned abortion entirely. Um, but that's not enough. Right. You have to actually stop people from crossing state lines. You have to stop people from getting the abortion pill flown in. So. Passing a law like this, actually, it's awful. But the state will actually have to enforce it. Um, and that means that the state is going to be in, have to be in people's lives, have to be surveilling them in a way that is now possible in the 21st century um, in a way that it, it really wasn't in, in the late 60s. So they're going to have to do that. So not just passing the laws, but actually figuring out how to implement them and, and who's going to go to jail is the thing that they're going to also have to reckon with the movement's promised as a result of all this like women's rights rhetoric they've used that, that abortion seekers are not going to be prosecuted, but I don't think that makes much sense. And you can already see it falling out of state laws, Um, that sometimes the state will only have the, the abortion seeker to prosecute. So what does it mean for, uh, what does it mean to be prosecuted? Are they going to be prosecuted for murder? Um, And, so you're going to see a whole host of people, not just abortion providers, though them always number one to be enmeshed in legal systems and and get themselves into um, in, they're going to be jailed. And so that's one thing. The other thing is that they are going to move on on national levels to ban abortion across the United States, either through the Supreme Court or through Congress. And I think that even though this movement has really tried to be narrow in terms of what its issues are. Um, you can already see that the movement's very interested in in moving now that the court has not only opened up the right to abortion, but really undermined um, the idea that there is a right to privacy in the Constitution. And all of the other rights that stem from that concept are at stake. And contraception and gay rights in various ways are on the chopping block. And the Alito Justice Alito was like, oh, well, those are different because... Um, because another life isn't at stake, but that doesn't really make much sense. And the fact of the matter is he argued, the court argued, that there were not enough substantial, um, a substantial origin of abortion rights in the American past. But in fact, there was 100 years of legal abortion in the United States. You know what there wasn't 100 years of precedent on is gay rights. Um, There is not, a substantial past of states recognizing rights to um, have the sex you want in the privacy of your own home of course gay marriage and so and so these are all these are all open now and they certainly um, with the court and state legislatures having the ability to do so are are going to be certainly um, are certainly going to be coming up very quickly. I mean, you can see the assault on on trans trans people across these states as really um, the opening of this of this new this new stage. Um, of, and, and really, co- really borrowing heavily on anti abortion rhetoric, those people um, really using that. And, and I think also criminalizing pregnant people in general is going to be a part of this also because. And states have already done this, right? Um, that you can be prosecuted for anything that endangers your fetus. Well, how many things does a person do that could potentially endanger fetus? Um, I mean, there's infinite things. Riding in a car is very dangerous. I don't think they're going to do that, but but they've already um, states like Alabama already are are criminalizing women who, you know. Take an antidepressant, right? Um, people have gone to jail in Alabama already for that, um, and and that is all in the explicitly in the name of of preserving fetal life. And I think that's because this is a movement that broadly is really angry about the ways that, especially gender and sexuality, have changed in the last fifty years. The ways in which it's become openly change, not just privately change, but openly change and also issues of race. And they're deeply invested in trying to change those back, but really not just back, that this is a new vision too. Um, this is a new, more rigid, more politicized, socially conservative vision that, that the movement is really going to try to impose, not just on red states, but across the country.
1: We've been in conversation with Jennifer Holland. She's Associate Professor of United States History at the University of Oklahoma, where she specializes in the history of gender, sexuality, and race in the 1900s. She received her master's degree from Utah State University and her Ph.D. right here from UW-Madison. We've been talking about her book, Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. You've been listening to A Public Affair right here on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I've been your host, Sholly Pittman. Coming up next is Letters and Politics. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good afternoon.
0: We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime, treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media distorted. We come and listen isn't supported ha <laughs> ha